All right, guys. Yo, welcome back to the Sobriety University podcast. Uh, really excited for this episode today. Thank you for waiting. If you've been waiting in the waiting room, uh, we were kind of chatting back uh, behind the scenes here and getting to know each other a bit. So Chris is someone I've recently met and why I'm really excited for this show in particular is because uh, you have a crazy story, man. And you have uh, the best part of it is not only do you have a crazy story, you have a crazy comeback. And that is what this channel is all about is kind of showing people that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you can live a fantastic life without drugs alcohol whatever substance it is and i think that fear that you know life's just going to be boring and dismal holds a lot of people back from taking that one to two year time frame to really you know get serious and, and get rid of the substance for good so chris thank you for coming on and um feel free to introduce yourself and, and tell people you know what you do where you're from all that all that good stuff well, Joel, thanks, first off, for having me on here. Uh, You're welcome. I'm pumped. I'm a little jealous that I'm not in Mexico, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I am still excited. And one of those things that you said I could totally relate to because when I first started getting introduced to recovery and, you know, getting sent to those local community groups uh, that we were talking about <laughs> earlier, the support groups, I would go in in my hometown of Emmaus, Pennsylvania, which is just mm -hmm. a, a little tiny town south of Allentown, which is just a, a mini Philadelphia, if you will. Okay. And I would go to these groups, you know, because the judge sent me there or like my parents mm -hmm. were upset or, you know, somebody at school or whatever it might have been that led me to my first community support group meetings. And I would get there and it would just be a bunch of angry, crusty old dudes. Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, man. My lawnmower done broke yesterday. <laughs> Stuff ain't going good, but I got 39 years sober, so everything's <laughs> going to be just fine. And you know what? 17-year-old kid is out there shooting heroin. <laughs> Keep coming back. And, like, there was just no message. There was nothing <laughs> compelling. There was nothing to hold me. There was nothing to say, kid, life's good. It was like, kid, your lawnmower's going to break one day. Yeah. <laughs> so, I appreciate you opening with that and, and for anybody who's listening that has experienced those same things I promise you life gets big, life gets beautiful mm -hmm. you don't have to necessarily keep coming back to misery after misery, you can keep coming back for excitement, keep coming back yeah. for freedom and those are the things that I love to talk about so oh, I didn't even introduce myself but yeah. hell yeah Joel Oh, yeah, Chris. Dude. Oh my God. That's so, yeah. After hearing that story, I'm like, yeah, I'd rather use heroin actually than uh, worry about my lawnmower. So, um, so let's dive into that a bit. You know, like uh, my channel, we focus mostly on marijuana. That seems to be what a lot of people come for and, and alcohol as well. Um, so, heroin is more one of those little niche topics. And when I hear somebody has gone through heroin, uh, I never did heroin. So, to me, that's still like in my mind, like, like that's a big deal. Like that's a big, big time drug. So walk us through like your, your kind of upbringing and what led you to start shooting up. Well, it's cool you said that because I have a vast experience with alcohol and marijuana. Mm, and they were, okay. they were my first two successive substances of use uh, in my okay. youth. And so I usually I like to start out and, and talk about how I had a a theoretically good childhood in like a good suburban area. And my parents are still together to this day. We wow. had, you know, a bunch of little brothers running around. We had uh, dogs, we had a house, we had, you know, I went to a good school and theoretically from the outside looking in, I had everything I needed. 
Like, mm -hmm. it was like, Chris, you're questionably intelligent. You're in a good school district. You yeah. can you can go on and do whatever it is you want. But for the, the second I can remember anything, I always remember this awkward, awful feeling inside. And I could never on my best day put to words what that was. I was a kid. I just assumed everybody felt that way. You know, there was no real indicator to me that I was abnormal. Mm -hmm. I just felt off. And some of the symptoms I talk about, I literally talk about these everywhere. But some of the symptoms I experienced were for some reason I could never really sleep at night. My mind would always race a billion miles a second. You know, I'm, I'm literally like, eight years old stressing about how I'm going to pay my homeowner's insurance one day. And it's just, there's no logic to it, but my brain is just constantly running, you know, okay. yeah. worse than, uh, I have to go to school. School sucks. You know, it's yeah. the morning. I'm thrown into these awkward social situations and I do terrible in social situations because I am mm -hmm. always concerned with what everybody else is doing. Can you still hear mm -hmm. me here? Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm getting a call through, so I'm okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sure it didn't knock me off. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to school as a kid, just like all of us do. We have to. And uh, you know, I'm in the social setting. One of the main problems that I have as a kid is this lack of connection that I feel inside. Like I don't ever feel like I connect with anybody. So if I was in a room with a bunch of people I didn't know, I kind of felt off. I didn't feel like I really fit there or there was just something missing yeah worse than that if i was in a room with you know people i did know i still felt that same weird you know internal feeling and worse yeah. than that if i was in a room with my family i still felt that same way like people who love me more than anything in the world like i still don't feel connected to you mm. and it, it was i could never figure it out couldn't tell you that that was happening i think it showed up in a lot of different ways where like i was bored all the time where I didn't mm. know what to do with myself or, you know, even when I was doing something exciting, I still kind of felt off or like something was missing. And, you know, thankfully through recovery, <laughs> figured out that it didn't have to be like that, that entire time. It, it just was. Mm. And, you know, I tried, tried my best to push through until I was mm -hmm. 13. Okay. And one day when I was 13 years old, I was already a giant, awkward, you know, 13 year old kid with like a small beard, <laughs> six foot five, you know, six, four or something like that near 300 Damn. pounds, maybe even a little over 300, just a big, awkward, funny looking kid, mm. you know, not fitting in well, not any of those things. Uh, I go to this family wedding mm. and I'm at a family wedding. And for those of you who aren't from Pennsylvania, I don't know if you're familiar with the fire hall, but uh, fire hall is like the cheapest place humans can rent to gather. Okay. So I don't know if you have them out Wisconsin way. I don't know if you have them in Mexico city, but, uh, what do we, call them? we call them, I think shacks in Mexico in Wisconsin. Um, yeah. All huts. We'll, we'll call them huts. Little, little chalets. Yeah. 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 It was like a, it was like a little gym looking thing almost. And okay. It was a family wedding. I think it was like my uncle or cousin. I don't even know who the heck it was, but somebody was getting married and there was an open bar at the, uh, at the, at the event. And I was the awkward 13 year old kid sitting in the far corner, just wishing I was anywhere, but there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just watching the adults go up to the open bar, you know, the plastic jugs that are like <laughs> manned by a sad bartender who was probably making four bucks an hour back then, you know, and, 
uh, I watched all the adults go there and drink and start, you know, laughing and dancing and having fun. And I was in the corner not having any fun at all. But being as smart as I am, I theorized if I went up to that bar and started drinking like the adults, I could have a better time. Because what they were doing looked attractive. What I was doing was not at all attractive. Okay. So eventually, I go up to that open bar, 13. And, you know, thankfully, I was larger than everybody else with a little bit of facial hair. Okay. So I grabbed the cup, I filled it, and I drank. I grabbed the cup, and I filled it, and I drank. And I kept repeating that process. And over the course of repeating that process that evening, the single greatest thing that ever happened to me in all 13 years of my life occurred. Because I suddenly felt that racing mind stop. Wow. That ugly hole inside of me fill up. And I started to go out and laugh and dance and have a great time with the rest of the people until the end of the night when I got grounded for the rest of my life. Because when you're 13, you know you're not allowed to do stuff like that and make a fool of yourself. And, yeah. Uh, you know. So I got grounded. I got grounded yep. forever. And it was it was a sad thing. And I went back home to my room, you know, a place where I'd stay up all night long thinking about stuff. And mm-hmm. for the first time ever, I felt right to sleep. Wow. And I, I woke up the next morning and I had at least a base understanding, you know, a 13-year-old base understanding of what had occurred. It was like, I drank, and it was awesome. Mm-hmm. And so I made it my goal from that second on to obtain alcohol as often as I could. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, being a 13-year-old grounded into his room forever, uh, for time and memorial forever and ever and ever, uh, I had a 21-year-old uncle who thankfully went out to the liquor store, the state store around here in Pennsylvania. They, uh, he obtained for me a squeeze bottle fifth of Governor's Club whiskey, and he hand-delivered it to me in my room the next day and i was so happy after i was done you know Uh, parents went to sleep and everything i grabbed that bottle out of my closet and i untwisted the cap and i drank again and the same magic that occurred the night before happened again for me and i knew i knew i had to chase that feeling because that feeling was so much better than what i had felt for the previous 13 years right it just it made too much sense and so i drank as often as i could at 13 14 years old and eventually, no matter what I'm drinking, that effect wasn't being produced anymore. So now I'm drinking mm. a ton of alcohol and I'm still feeling a little off and a little disconnected and a little uncomfortable, and a little racy in the mind. Mm. It doesn't make sense because that thing that had worked so well for me for a couple of years wasn't really working anymore. And so yeah. I got introduced to the thing you like to talk about, marijuana. You know, Chronic. And, and marijuana was a little different back then. You know, there were no... Right. Like, stores for it or what, you know, <laughs> uh, we got it uh, through my friend's brother and yeah. when i smoked that it produced that same effect in addition mm, to the okay. effect the internal effect it also made my eyes red and made me eat doritos and you know oh, i love yeah, that dude. <laughs> munchy game. yeah yeah you get the munchies you're a 300 pound man of course you love munchies <laughs> well quick question for you chris so mm-hmm you were feeling that effect from alcohol, like did it wear off? And is that why you went to weed or like what made you decide to add weed to that uh, concoction? I mean, I feel like it was likely a a mixture of it being available and near me and Mm. also alcohol, not really giving me what I needed that Uh, full effect of just comfortability and intoxication. And that's, that's what I lived for at that time Mm -hmm. in my life. I was so young, like I barely was even a person, you know, yeah. <laughs> <I was just laughs> doing all this stuff and 
you know, smoking weed in the back of cars with my friends and uh-huh. uh, you know, just all the crazy stuff that we used to do, like driving around and finding woods, and, you know, weird old monuments and being in Pennsylvania, we had like crazy old meeting houses from the 1700s we would break into and like just sit oh, wow. there and scare ourselves and be weird, <laughs> stupid kids. And nice. you know, after a while, like that, stopped being fun that stopped mm-hmm. producing that to that it did and i had to yeah. then graduate to you know pharmaceuticals and psychedelics and wow in their own unique ways they produced that effect for me they made me whole they made me comfortable and they you know it was it was perfect for a mm-hmm. period of time and then after a while they stopped working too and i kind yeah. of kept getting pushed up that train of, of substances and you know, I landed on cocaine next and cocaine, okay. you know, took me a totally different direction because it was like the polar opposite of marijuana. You know, it made me throw the Doritos out the window, run around like a maniac. <laughs> I loved it because it produced that same effect internally mm-hmm. and it made my mind race in a good way, a way I had never okay. understood before. And it worked for a period of time. And after mm-hmm. a while, it stopped producing that effect too. And then I just wow. get paranoid. Then I'm disappearing okay. for three or four days at a time. Then I'm I'm Holy just this like nightmare of a human. I'm a manic, you know. Crazy <laughs> wow. Um, and you're like six five. So if I saw you yeah. charging at me with those crazy eyes, I'd be like, oh. Dude. I didn't charge too many people. I was usually too many. Okay. on destroying more of my brain, you know, and oh, just okay. like getting higher and, and keeping it going and. Gotcha. You know, those were just interesting times. And after a while, cocaine stopped working, you know, and now it's just making me paranoid. Now I'm just going crazy and uh, disappearing, and, you know, drinking NyQuil to try and sleep after three or four days and, and just dumb, dumb stuff. But mm. at that time, I knew that there was only one place left for me to go. And I was not willing to go there because I had okay. seen family members go to state prison for long periods of time. I'd seen people die of overdoses, you know, well before it was common to mm. die of overdoses. And, you know, I was just not comfortable at all trying heroin. I made a very firm and very conscious personal decision to draw that proverbial line in the sand. And I said, no, 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 no. This guy is never, ever, ever trying heroin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, contrary to my plan, I was at a keg party when I was about 17 years old, and I was standing right next to the keg where I always was. You know, I had to make sure everybody was adhering to their four drink maximum, so there was some nice and new later. A guy approached me with a little wax paper bag full of uh, brown powder, and he wow. said, "Chris, would you like to try this?" To which I immediately responded, "Yes." <laughs> it didn't make a lot of sense because no part of me was interested. In Every part of me, in fact, was the polar opposite. I did not want to try it okay. at all. But when given the opportunity, when approached with it, in whatever state I was in that night, mm-hmm. I immediately said yes and consumed the heroin. And it took me way, way off into the stratosphere. Wow. Because it took that awful feeling in my brain, that racing thoughts, nightmare that was always going on, and it crushed it. It rendered my brain completely incapable of processing a thought. Oh. And that, that's what I had been looking for. That oh, ugly wow. feeling inside was gone. Totally oh, gone. It was like being wrapped in the most perfect warm blanket. Mm-hmm. Just, it, it was magical. 
And from that day on, I made it my absolute goal to obtain it as often as I possibly could because it was so much better than the life that I was living. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, it took me so many places, but I don't want to keep rambling here. You know, feel free. Cut in. <laughs> man, dude, Chris, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I could relate to so much of what you're talking about. And I think a really important part that you mentioned is that idea that, you know, it is really good at the beginning. All the drugs, all the alcohol we do, there is that honeymoon phase. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. And yeah. just like just like you said, it doesn't last. The high does not give the same effect anymore. And that's where so many people fall into addiction where they're just like they're trying they're chasing the dragon. I mean, the heroin's a perfect example. That's where that came from, right? Like the South Park episode where <laughs> Stan's trying to shoot up the heroin from the guitar hero game. Uh it's just like that. Yeah, it's a, oh, such a great, <laughs> such a funny episode. And um, yeah, it's just like, like you said, uh, I, I think anybody can relate to a relationship, right? Like you have a relationship. Yeah. Uh, it might have been great at the beginning. You know, the love, the chemistry was there. There's emotions all over. And then a year down the line, you're like, wait a sec, this is not the relationship I thought I, it was in the beginning. And so, and you see this too in relationships. So many people chase that purple dragon in the relationship. Like if we can just get back to that first month when we were dating, oh, everything will be perfect. Even though none of our values or our life aligns at all. And I think most people, especially heroin probably are like, you know what? Heroin really doesn't align with who I want to be as a person. So, so for you, what, what, what was your heroin continuation journey after you took that for the first time? Like when did it get bad for you too? Like when were you like, oh shit, this is not... <laughs> Well, here's the, the fun, common theme in my life, at least my life using drugs and alcohol. Uh, I didn't last more than 60 days on the street ever. Mm. Like I just, I could not live life from that moment on. It became a complete, almost comical situation. I mean, it was tragic in the moment, but like now if I look back, I'm just like, wow, how silly. How silly was I, you know, to even do these things, <laughs> spurred into doing them. And, you know, now it's understandable. It was a brain illness. You know, I, I get it. My cerebral cortex wasn't operative at the time. The limbic system oh, definitely wow. flighted me to death. And, uh, you know, I was constantly in fight or flight mode. Oh, um, okay. So, so what happened was, you know, shortly after I was always a, a professional waiter, you know, at Friendly's. Okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of Friendly's. but it's I have, like a, yeah. Right. So it's like a like almost a kids themed ice cream restaurant. And I was always waiting tables there through all of my drugs, you know, and wow. 15, 16, 17 years old. And when I got started on heroin, uh, I just could not wait tables anymore. I would mm. have to disappear for four hours at a time to, you know, drive out to Allentown, wait for the dope man, get my drugs, come back like nothing ever happened. Uh, you know, they fired me rather quickly, unfortunately, <laughs> in order to continue doing what I needed to do to feel okay, I needed money. Mm-hmm. And I started to, you know, have to do stuff that a guy like me doesn't really do. I started to steal things from my mom, you know, and I stole all of her DVDs and that'll date wow. me a little bit because, you know, DVDs aren't even a thing anymore. <laughs> but I stole what? all her DVDs. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, back in the day, in the olden days of yore, for those of you who are a little younger, I used to be able to take those DVDs to a place called FYE, 
Okay. Um, they, would, they would give me like you know, $3 per, $4 per, $6 per day, whatever it was. And I utilized that to get by for a little bit. And after a while, my mom went to grab a DVD and put it in the DVD player. And neither of them were there. She got naturally upset. Okay. And so she gave me an ultimatum. She said, Chris, mm. you, know, you can either go to detox or you can just get away. You know, it's a paraphrased version. Wow. I'm sure my mom was much more uh, loving and caring than just get away from me. But she mm -hmm. made it clear that I needed to go to detox. Okay. And, and I was terrified. Because I was about to separate myself from the only thing in the world that made me me and made me comfortable and made me okay. Yeah. And so I was literally peeing my pants, terrified to go into this detox at 18 years old. And I get in there, it's a like an old state hospital, very dirty. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, kind of low, you know, poor people rehab because I was okay. a poor person. And, you know, they send you in there and just kind of warehouse you. And, it was one of those deals there. So I stayed for seven or eight days. Even if it was the greatest treatment center on earth, it would not have landed. Uh, you know, I was 18. I didn't really understand what I was up against. I didn't understand what was happening. And really, truly, science didn't understand at that point what was happening with me. We were just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall trying to help people. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I get in there for six days. I detox. I use, you know, Suboxone detox that they give you. And, you know, after a little bit there, I started to get my wits back, my mental faculties, if you will. And I figured, you know, if I leave this place against medical advice, you know, now I'm sober. I've been sober for like eight days. Nobody's ever done that before. It's like a record in my wow. mind. And so I, I hitchhike, I grab my Marlboro bag, I hook it over my shoulder, and I hitchhike down Route 422 to head back to Allentown until I convinced my dad to come pick me up. Okay. And, you know, my dad also has no clue what he's up against. Uh, my dad's a good hardworking steel worker, you know, okay. just a good salt of the earth American guy. He had, no <laughs> idea. he had no clue what he was up against. I had no clue what I was up against because mm. logically I've been sober now eight days, not, yeah. not counting clocks, and I've been sober eight days. <laughs> and I figure if I get home, get a job, work a lot of hours, get back to my girlfriend, the world's going to work out perfectly because now I'm sober. Now I can okay. exercise the use of my will intelligently. Mm. And how charade I was, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got back home and within a couple hours, I left my parents' house with every intention of obtaining employment. And I found myself asleep in a bathroom, intoxicated uh, very, very quickly. Wow. And I couldn't tell you exactly how it happened. Because, mm. like, I just spent the last eight days thinking about how I'm not going to do this. And I spent the mm. last eight days hyper-focused on making sure I didn't make the same mistakes I did. And the second I got the keys to my life back in my hands, I failed. Wow. What, 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 what do you think contributed to that? What was... I couldn't even begin to conjecture to tell you, other than in that eight days, nothing had changed for me internally. I hadn't learned all that much. I hadn't, you know, been through any kind of brain changing therapies. I hadn't, uh, you know, found any kind of higher power. I hadn't any, nothing changed other than I was physically sober for eight or nine days. And I, you know, listened to the Google dolls and watched Superbird, whatever it was, you know, like nothing. Iris didn't get you sober, man. What? What? No. It didn't change your, your, your life. Such no, a good it was like oh, five. So I think they had just come out with like, better days or something and uh, I'm sitting, okay. sitting in detox like crying my eyes out just oh this song is so good you know <laughs> and like when I get out of here it's going to be a better day oh, and the second I got out 
failure, mm. automatic failure. And it made me feel a whole lot better because I was high again. You know, I was mm. comfortable. And I'd come back to that that thing that made me okay. But I ran into a dilemma real quick. Uh -huh. My parents had their electronics regarded. They knew. They knew wow. what was and so I had to start doing other things like going into other people's houses and taking their belongings. And Whoa. I'm just a good suburban kid, you know, mm. like I, I'm not that guy. I do mm. not like to hurt people, but uh -huh. here I was breaking into people's houses yeah. and within uh, God, 30 days of leaving that detox, I was getting arrested on felony burglary charges. Wow. And I'm like oh. 18.5, you know, I'm not oh. that old. Yeah, um, but old enough. Yeah, old enough. All yeah, all I knew at that point was what TV was telling me about jail. You know, it's like <laughs> Bubba's coming to get you, and okay. it's going down. You're gonna have a cuddle buddy, and it's gonna be a rough time. Yeah, and I was mortified. Like a month prior, I was peeing my pants. I was so scared to go to detox, and now I'm going to jail. And there's like oh. no option here. It's like the Mukunji wow. police were. They were rather forceful. You know, they didn't take kindly to the fact that I walked into somebody else's house and scared them. And, you know, uh, not not a good thing. You know, now I'm like, I'm scared. Like, I know Bubba's in there. I'm terrified. And uh, I get in, there's no Bubba. But, you know, I have to put on the monochrome colored uniform. I trade in my name for the first time to become number 0131644. Uh, it will become a common theme for me over the next couple of years to trade okay. in Chris Drysdale and become zero one three one six four four. That was my number. That will always be my number. Wow. In the and I will, I will remember it till the day I die because I, you know, spent several hundred days just hanging out, being called out zero one three one six four four. I'm gonna change uh, your name right from Instagram <laughs> at zero one six four four. Maybe one day. Maybe one day we'll do yeah, that. Maybe one day. <laughs> uh, but, you know, now I'm in jail and like jail uh, it's a it's such a dehumanizing experience to be okay. taken away taken away from your life you know stripped down uh, put in a monochrome colored uniform you know forced to wear county underpants is like a joke that I make all the time because you know I had to wear somebody else's underwear for months and months at a time mm -hmm. and you know, be told when to wake up, told when to go to sleep, told when to eat, told when to move, told when to breathe, told when to this, told when to that. And truly, nothing corrective, even remotely debatably corrective, occurred when I was in there. I was warehoused for, I don't know how many days it was the first time, it's 90, 100, whatever it might have been. And for that number of days, I sat in my bunk and I thought like, man. This has got to be sufficient pain. There's no way I'm going to relapse after this because I don't want to be a letdown. I don't want to be that guy who disappoints me in family. I don't want to be a felon. You know, I, I was at that point. Yeah. And like, you know, I thought at 18 and a half, 19 years old, I had destroyed my entire life <laughs> already, you know, and being tossed in that cage and told you're worthless and you know, just made to feel like an animal or less than human didn't really do a whole lot to motivate me to be better when I got out. Okay. Despite that, I still had a plan is when I get out, I'm going to get a job and work a lot of hours, get back with my girlfriend because now I've been sober for a ton of days. Nobody's ever done that. It's going to be a mega record, you know? And I got out and within a couple hours, man, I got the keys to my life back in my hands and I failed. I was in that bathroom again. Wow. Right wow. away. 
same day, same day service, you know, <laughs> and it's not so much more this time because I had a PO and my parole officer, for those of you who aren't familiar with, you know, how the justice system works, he wanted me to pee in a cup. And when I'm using heroin, I don't pee in the cup the way he wants me to. And so he gave me an ultimatum a couple of days after leaving jail. He's like, Chris, you'll have seven days to fix this problem or you're going back to jail. Whoa. Let's establish. I did not want to go back to jail. Zero uh-huh. percent of me wanted to go back to jail. So the math started in my head. I knew I had four okay. days to keep going. Okay. As many. Okay. <laughs> and those four days slid by really effortlessly. And I knew the day that I had to get clean. A hundred percent had to get clean or I was going back to jail. I woke up and I found that I couldn't. Whoa. And man, there's not much more demoralizing than doing something like that against your will when you know the consequences are coming down the pike and they're going to hit you. And goodness gracious, you know, like the next day came. I knew I had two days to go see my PO. And I found I couldn't stop. And I came up with cockamamie ideas like I was going to eat a bunch of niacin and drink water. And I did the same thing the night before, you know, because Mm -hmm. in my mind, in my heart of hearts, I wasn't going back. I'm willing to go to any lengths to not go back to jail. But for some reason, I can't seem to stop doing the thing that's going to send me there. And eventually, it came up that the day I was supposed to go meet my PO and, and you know, pee clean for him, I took other people's stuff to a pawn shop. I grabbed my girlfriend. And I ran to North Carolina. Wow. Because we established, wow. I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. No. And so yeah. here's what and did your did your girlfriend use, use as well? Were you guys, did you guys she use did. together? Yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, you know, just a rough, rough situation. Two mm-hmm. teenagers, you know, and yeah, uh, man. Well, here's where it gets kind of funny because within ten days, I got arrested in Buffalo, New York. Wow. So for those for- of you who are really missed out on the American geography, if you're not familiar with the East Coast, <laughs> North Carolina is like way south, and Buffalo is way north of where I was. And wow. That alone could be an entertaining podcast story. <laughs> yeah, we might have to do it <laughs> sometime for sure. <laughs> Road trip with zero one two four zero three one six four four zero one two one. Oh man, that's but, crazy! Yeah. So now I'm I'm like nineteen and I'm in jail in Buffalo. I don't mm. know if you ever been to Buffalo, Joel. No, nope. Buffalo very cold. It's right okay. on Lake Erie. It's it's freezing. I got arrested at the end of October, and it was freezing. It was terrible, just awful up there. I was detoxing on heroin after a you know ten day run up and down the East Coast trying to hide from parole, hide from law enforcement. It was terrible. So the jail, Erie County Correctional Facility, was also super ultra overcrowded at the time, and we were all hooked into the gym the little gymnasium on the little boat beds. You ever see those things? Like the things they'll give you like a five-year-old to sleep in. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Google that. If you've never seen okay. like a boat, a boat bed, it's just like a little plastic okay. thing. It's terrible. Um, no real mattress. You just like on a plastic thing in a gym. And the worst part of it was I was in there with at least a hundred other people. Most of us were detoxing and we had one toilet and one oh. sink to share. I mean, it it started this multiple day experience where I'm in this intake gym 
and like people are defecating on themselves, urinating on themselves and puking on ourselves. Like we were just a hideous mess. And I'm thinking that whole time there has got to be like, that has to be sufficient suffering for me. Like I cannot do drugs again. I am done. (laughs) And so after 10 days, they, they, I went to the Supreme court and they shipped me back to Allentown where I belonged. And I got there and I got to see the judge and he was like, dude, you know, you're 19. This ain't working. We just found you in Buffalo. You got charges up there. You got charges in North Carolina. You were on parole. You never should have left, you know, paraphrase version. After your time, I'm going to send you to treatment. Okay. And I was <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. I'm good. And so after I hung out in jail for a whole bunch of months, they sent me to this place called, uh, you know, I'm not even going to name them on this podcast, but it was a place in downtown Allentown. Okay. And it was a therapeutic community. Are you familiar with the therapeutic community model? I think so. And guys, if you want, uh, if you want to know the exact name, there's a PDF you can download in the description that'll has 30 different resources where you can you know, have the exact name of these groups and you'll know what it is. You don't want to go to this group. Trust me. Trust ah, okay. Me. Okay. So the therapeutic community is like a behavior modification uh, idea through the Department of Corrections. And the idea behind it is if they correct our behavior, we won't do bad stuff again. Which, if you know anything about brain science of addiction, complete waste of time. Okay. Absolutely. Huge waste of time. <laughs> so, Chris, so this, is, this is in uh, God Grant Me the Serenity group. What's that? This isn't the God Grant Me the Serenity group, is it? Okay, no, 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 no. no this, this group is not on that list. So this sounds way worse. So yes, yeah. continue. I mean, you know, like if I was just a bad kid who misbehaved, it might have worked really well for me. If I had a substance use disorder that is a brain illness, it is completely ineffective. Hmm. But that's what they masqueraded it as. It's like, this will help you with your addiction. So I'm like, cool. I was the nerd. I sat in the front row. I listened to everything I could listen to. I kept my shirt tucked in the whole time like they told me to. And I sang in front of the group to embarrass me. And I sat in the corner and I wore a dunce cap for 24 hours if I did something wrong. And like just the silliest, most dehumanizing garbage you could think of. But I did all of it because I was convinced that I had to do something Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to keep living that life in that way that I was. Mm -hmm. And I graduated from that. I got my little certificate, said my behavior was good. And I got out and I relapsed right away. Right away. Instantly, man. Man. Such a disappointment. Because I I had just spent a year physically sober. I just spent a year trapped in a cage. I spent a year in, you know, just stuff that I don't want to do. Stuff that 20-year-old me doesn't want any part of, you know. Mm And I get out of this place and it started a 60 day period of my life that was absolutely filled with misery. There was no hope on the horizon. I'm 20 years old and I'm like watching my friends from high school go off and develop relationships with people. I am like bouncing from couch to homeless to park to eating out a dumpster, dipping off to a psych ward to hide from my PF, just all these terrible things. Mm-hmm. And through the whole thing, the worst part of it all was that there was no hope for me. I just felt like I was on a vicious cycle for the rest of my life and it was never going to get better. And the, when you have no hope, like there is nothing good. It's just misery and misery on, on misery. And I'm so thankful now to be able to be a light for people who feel that way. Because if you feel that way, 
you don't have to for very long, especially now there's resources everywhere. And there's so many people like me who are fired up to help you get where you got to go. And for me, uh, it didn't happen quite normally. Uh, August 27th, 2007, which is to this day, my sobriety date, recovery wow. date, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, I was walking in a region of downtown Allentown and uh, the Allentown Vice Squad pulled me over, even though I was, you know, walking. They pulled me over <laughs> and said, put your hands against the wall because they knew I was on parole. And they took me back to jail, and uh, I had a needle in my pocket. So a possession of a hypodermic instrument was my last okay. criminal charge. And they sent me back, and I you know, called my dad, and I was like, Pop, it happened again. You know, Here we are. I was confident. I was never going to get better. It was just going to be forever. Yeah. And the judge, he was like, dude, you're 20. This ain't working out very well. I'm going to send you a treatment. And I was like, <laughs> whatever dude that doesn't work you know okay but you know do your thing because i'm sure i'll fail and be back a couple hours anyway you know okay and so eventually they sent me to another treatment center one that is a much 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 more therapy oriented okay and even though this was 2007 you know the treatment modalities weren't quite as far advanced as they are now in 2023 mm-hmm. but they did the best they could and they guided me uh, to move to a halfway house instead of go back to Allentown and try again. And okay. I got to a halfway house here in Lancaster County and I literally, you know, haven't left this area. I mean, I do leave frequently, but yeah, uh, I still live here, you know, and like this area, I got plugged in with some guys in those support groups and those guys <laughs> were young and they were fired. Okay. Oh they were yeah. Talking, they were talking like I couldn't even believe they were talking about doing stuff like I used to do but they were genuinely happy. You could see that they were just excited to be alive. And I was like, man, how do I, how do I do this? How do I become like you guys? And they took me under their wing and they showed me a completely different way to live. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good spot to stop for a second. (laughs) Let's, let's process that. Yeah, dude. Oh my God, Chris, man, that was a, you know, I, I felt, a bit of that story. Like I, I, I could put myself in that shoe in those shoes. Um, I'll never know what that's like. Um, but that was a very powerful Ooh. story. So thank you for sharing um, all that and really letting people know that how far you fell. And I think that's, uh, you know, as painful as it is, it's beautiful that you can look back on it and talk about it with such uh, non-attachment. It's very much like you're just reading a book and I think just like with any breakup, anything, I, I like to relate it back to, to relationships because I think that's the easiest to, to kind of relate with. Um, I mean, you've broken up with someone, you look back a year later and you barely remember them and you just are like grateful that it probably didn't work out. So uh, that is so, that is just so wild, man. And, I, you know, I, one of my good friends, he was a heroin user too. And um, he, he's been on the channel too. And um, we still talk every week to this day and he's helped me in a lot of areas, but um, he's never told me like, he, I don't think it got that bad <laughs> to where, um, bro, I can't imagine that when, when I was quitting, one of the big motivators for me was I was near going to prison. Um, like I was selling, selling weed and stuff, a lot of it, a lot like pounds and, and ounces and of dabs and stuff. And so, uh, and I got in trouble with the police the night I quit. Uh, thankfully, I only had like a little bit on me. But it, like in that moment when the car, when the cop was writing the ticket, 
I saw that premonition of like, I'm like, dude, I ain't doing well in prison. First off, I'm, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to have a, a bad time. Some <laughs> other guys are going to have a good time, but I'm not going to have a good time. And, uh, it, it was that fear of prison that made me quit. So quick question on the prison for you. Um, how, like, what was that like? Like, what was, I mean, you shared a bit about it, but it doesn't sound I mean, fun. So I was in, in Lehigh County prison, uh, you know, not like a, a super scary, dangerous prison. It was rather new. And I mean, I saw some fights and some violence and a stabbing or two, but like nothing, wow. uh, you know, came to me. Um, okay. You know, yeah, nothing you're... like super traumatic happened to me in jail, okay. but just being taken out of your life and mm. put in a uniform and tossed in a six by eight cage with another person, you know, going to the bathroom in front of them 23 hours a day, whatever it might've been, you know, like there's something about that that definitely mm. causes some long-term trauma because okay. we're humans. We're, you know, social creatures. We're supposed to be out in the sunlight. We're supposed to mm. be developing relationships. And it's not to say that I didn't develop some good, you know, life, lifelong relationships with people that I was in jail with, but uh, man, you know, the, the whole point of a lot of the work I do with blueprints and the social programs we've started is to divert people away from the criminal justice system. Because had I, you know, been spared of those several hundred days, you know, my parents wouldn't have had to wake up and go to work and be embarrassed that their kid was in the paper, you know, that their kid's mm-hmm. a felon. They wouldn't have to wake up and, you know, just be ashamed to be related to me. And like, I could have saved them all that stress, all that trouble and all those problems. If we just had a solution for it back then, like we do right now. Man, that's beautiful. Um, I want to share a comment here from smiley Fairchild. Uh, dude, thanks for coming on, man. I'm, I take it. You, you know, Chris, and uh, that's, that's just awesome, man. That's that, uh, you know, you get to connect and have that awesome connection. That's, that's super powerful. I love uh, that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what's up, Smiley Fairchild? Great to see you. Uh, we've got Huds. Great to see you, brother. Uh, evening gents. And he's a Philly native. So, uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it's a wild place for sure. So, um, fun. Fun, and then we have uh, Mr. Spicy going strong in 2024. Thank you, brother. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we're going to have a spicy year, but in the good way. So, keeping it keeping it alive and so you know man i'm just you know really just reflecting here and just i felt a lot of gratitude when i hear this story because uh i'll share today i'm going through some some stuff that's quite difficult uh, mentally and you know it, you're right when there's when that hope's gone um, it, life can seem very bleak and i think it's just a good reminder that you, you know to be grateful for the fact that we can go outside and go for a walk. We can go get food. We can go, we can go fill up a cup of water and drink. Um, yeah. It just really puts things in perspective. And it's almost weird because there was a part of me that wanted to get arrested. There was a part, there was a part of me that wanted to go to jail so I could start to appreciate life, which is just the most wild thing. I think <laughs> I was almost like, just give me like, I just wanted a quick fix, like a momentary, just where everything just kind of fell into place. So where I want to go from here is, Chris, how did you, so you got into recovery programs. What was that journey like from you to finding that peace in your life and finding that reason to live? The most messed up part of it was I didn't believe anything would work. 
I went into it just scoffing, completely mm. not interested. Mm. And it still worked. It still <laughs> worked. Here's the kicker is I showed wow. up wherever, you know, my guide or sponsor or whatever you want to call him, wherever he told me to show up, I showed up. Whatever he told me to do, as silly as it was, I did it. And honestly, through like even the silliest little things, he'd have me go back to the halfway house and fold another dude's laundry. Mm. So mind you, I'm like minutes out of jail. You know, like I'm not folding another dude's laundry. Zero percent of me is interested in that. But he was like, just go do it. Call me in the morning. Just go do it. Call me in the morning. Over and over, he's sending me off on these dumb little tasks that okay. I have no interest in doing. And after a while, it started to make sense as I was doing uh, things for other people and getting mm. nothing in return, like yeah. directly in return. And after a while of getting into the habit of doing selfless things for the benefit of other people, not me, I started to decrease that selfishness that was such a mm. plague on my life. And I started to learn how much I loved serving others and how much I loved being a part of other people's lives. And like, even in the silliest ways, like folding somebody's laundry, then I saved him like eight minutes of effort and didn't pay credit for it, you know, mm. and like as minuscule and non-existent as that is right now to me, it's still the same theory when I show mm. up to do a podcast, you know, when I show up to, to talk to a group of people who are in rehab or a group of people who are in jail or whatever it might be. It's that same heart, that same spirit that comes with that. And I was just being trained early on in the simplest ways, probably because I was so dumb. I never would have actually listened or realized <laughs> it. And man, just what a blessing it is to have people who've tread the path before us uh -huh. show us the way. And Absolutely. I'm forever grateful to that group of guys, man, forever. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful, man. I uh, could relate a lot to that. Just the importance of service. And this is not new to, uh, this is not a new concept. They really preach it when you get into these groups. And I think a lot of people have resistance. I didn't want to go get a volunteer job. I didn't want to go, you know, be of help or clean up after a meeting. And it's like, every time you do that, though, you realize, okay, I didn't die. I actually feel good. <laughs> and like, I feel useful. I think that's a big thing of it because when we're in addiction, we feel so helpless um, because all we want to can do is focus on is getting our drugs or our booze or whatever it is. So when we get to get out there and actually add value to other people's lives, uh, you, you just realize that you do have value, even if it's a small amount. And that, as I always say in my videos, like it's just about getting to the next day. Like if you can do something that can just get you to go to bed and wake up the next morning sober, that's that's a win. That's a win if you can do that every day because that's what's going to get those weeks, those months, those years compounded when you can just make it to the next day. And some days, you know, as great as recovery is and as beautiful of moments we have, we're going to have moments that are going to be tough and difficult. And we have to come back to that. Okay, how can I be a service? How can I get out of my own head and ironically into somebody else's with their permission, of course? That's codependency if they don't ask. So we we don't want to do that, but uh, in a way that you know they they appreciate. So uh, I think that's a great message, and it's a great message to anyone watching this. That you know, if you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling like you you know purposeless, get out and be of help to somebody. Just even if it's for a few minutes a day, just try it. You know, and if it doesn't work, money back. We'll give you your money back. Promise you. Um, which is you know. You're not paying us, but the point is, is that it will make a difference in a transformation. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll share like a personal story. Like a, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, a 
kind of a mini relationship kind of start to take a turn south. And man, it was just like so disappointing. And so I hopped on a call with a guy and, you know, we gave him some, I, I, we focus on his dating life and it just, I completely forgot about the whole situation. And it was just, that's the beauty of it. You know, you just, you get out of your own head and um, it came back for sure. It wasn't like, you know, a lasting thing, but it, it gave me that clarity that, okay, there is a solution to feeling bad and that's being of service. So beautiful, beautiful point, point there, Chris. Um, I kind of want to dive in a little bit too on what you're doing today because, you know, blueprints for addiction recovery, like that's so sick. First off, your logo is dope. And I, tell us a little bit about that. Like what, what is this organization? What, yeah, what do you do? So uh, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a tale, but I started, uh, working, started working at that rehab. Uh, actually okay. when I was at the halfway house, I started working at a diner and the diner, I was like an overnight waiter at, you know, just doing the thing that I did best is serving people food. Mm. Uh, I'm so skilled, <laughs> basically nothing. Uh, that's what I did. And eventually after a couple of years, you know, they made me a manager and like, it was great. I wanted to work there for the rest of my life. And one morning at like 4am, they unceremoniously fired me. Uh, and I was okay. like, this is the end of my life. You know, this is what I wanted to do. And I had been going down to the rehab that I uh, went through to take meetings like once a week, you know, on my only day off. And the next day I went back down there. I was like, hey, y'all got a job? You know, yeah. <laughs> <I got fired. laughs> it. And, you know being from the, the era of like, you just always have to have a job, always work. I loved working. Uh, the mm -hmm. next day I got hired at that rehab and I drove 70 miles one way make nine dollars an hour uh, wow. to be a tip at that rehab and it was one wow. of the coolest years of my life cool. I lost a, a pile of money i got to see people lay the groundwork for lifelong recovery the same way i did <laughs> and eventually i could no longer afford to drive down there yeah <laughs> too much yeah. Uh, and I, you know, uh, this set of circumstances happened that I ended up opening the first uh, transitional recovery house in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Sweet. Uh, because a bunch of my friends were all about to be homeless at the same time from that halfway wow. house. Yeah. And we went out and rented a house and let them live there. We developed a guideline sheet to like 64 points to help them in that early recovery period. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened was like those first 10 dudes, so many of them stayed sober long term that other people wanted to come be a part of it and like had to go rent another house and then rent another house. And eventually I landed uh, on a landlord who taught me how to mm -hmm. succeed in real estate. He said, stop wow. renting, buy these houses. And I was okay. like, dude, I, I have like, three years out of jail, I have, you know, a couple thousand dollars. <laughs> like, How am I going to uh -huh. buy a house, you idiot? <laughs> he gave me a loan to buy my first house. Wow. I, this is just a guy that I rented house a house from. Mm -hmm. Like, that's where I lived. And the only reason I landed on his house was because he was the only landlord around here that would let you smoke cigarettes and have a dog at the same time. Oh, and perfect. Pure happenstance. He taught me real estate. He taught me how to make money. And like, mm -hmm. it didn't even make a whole lot of sense because I didn't launch into it to make money. It was just mm -hmm. like, shit, my friends need a place to go. And like, yeah. I love recovery. I love helping people. Mm -hmm. So eventually that thing blew up into like an actual full blown business that uh, we had like 170 beds and 12 oh, or 13 beautiful. houses. And uh, so many people started life on recovery through that. It was amazing. Mm. And 
eventually I had a, an employee, Brooke, who uh, still works for Blueprint and is amazing. Uh, she's a building manager now. She just kept kind of saying, like, we should start an outpatient. We should start a rehab. We should start mm-hmm. a this. And I just kept saying no, and no, and no, and no, because I didn't want to deal with the state. I didn't want to, you know, mm-hmm. do all the stuff. I just wanted mm-hmm. to help people, you know. And eventually, yeah. circumstances came up that uh, I met Ben, Ben McCoy, who's our executive vice president of Blueprints. And cool. he is an absolute wizard at most of those things that I am not a wizard at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we combined with another guy, Jesse, to form the the weird triumvirate of blueprints. And uh, wow. you know, Jesse's really good at, at operational things and, and uh, you know, spreadsheets and other stuff that I'm not that great at. So we okay. came together and became a really, really well oiled machine and okay. started our little tiny outpatient in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. Our little four thousand it was it was so cool, you know. So cool. Same spirit as the original recovery houses is just come mm-hmm. here. You know, who who cares what funding source you have? Like we really mm-hmm. wanted to provide transportation. We wanted to provide all and these nice. things that nobody else was providing to crush those barriers and the things that keep people away from therapy and away okay. from treatment. And we called it the grand experiment. You know, was like, <laughs> can you provide high quality treatment with amenities? And still accept medically, accept people who can't afford anything. Can you show everybody the same love that rich people get? Okay. And weird enough, it worked. It worked really wow. well. It wasn't without a ton of struggles and mm-hmm. problems. But I'll tell mm-hmm. you, like the community around Blueprints right now is unbelievable. Oh, I mean, the energy cool. is palpable when you walk mm-hmm. into a Blueprints facility. Because, I mean, one of my favorite quotes uh, I believe was from like a satisfaction survey that we do at the end of every week or whatever it is. Uh, my favorite quote from, you know, anonymous client at Blueprints was, I walk around the facility and I, I still have yet to find somebody who doesn't give a fuck about me. Doesn't not, love, um, you know, like just, mm-hmm. man, I've been to yeah. so many rehabs and most of the people are just there for paychecks. You know, they're just okay. like there to survive. And at Blueprints, like, everybody is so dedicated, so dedicated to like the yeah. full health of the person that we get to serve. And yeah. you know, we have like 175 employees, and oh my God. darn near every single one of those employees are incredible. I mean, the oh, most uh, it's just it's beautiful, and yeah. I can't take much credit for it because like I don't have that much time to go spend on the day to day. And, you know, okay. today I was there at one of the facilities and just the love, oh, I love it so much, you know, just being even a tiny part of somebody's recovery journey. And, you know, wow, you know, what an honor, what an honor. Dude, that's so beautiful, man. Um, first off, congratulations on, on doing that. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, I think congratulations cuts it. It's um, thank you. Thank you for that service for the world and for you know, helping so many people's lives. And it's it's amazing that you're so passionate about it and that you've been able to grow something from such a rough spot uh, that you can create something now that can give back and help so many people. So that is beautiful, man. That is absolutely beautiful. Thank you. And then really the, the important stuff is we launched out on a thing we call Second Chance PA, which is a pre-arrest mm. diversion program uh, that just turned five years old uh, last week. Wow. 
And so what Let's we go. do is we send certified recovery specialists out on scene with law enforcement. And at that oh, wow. point, at that point of crisis, the law enforcement officer has the opportunity to give the person treatment instead of jail. Well, think about that one. Think about that one. Yeah, that's, that sounds much better. And it's not treatment like the first treatment you went to. It sounds like this real treatment. Like you're going to get yeah, better it's treatment. Very, it's very individualized. So the CRS will go through a screening and assessment process with the person and make sure that they get connected to the best facility that they used yeah, for them. You know, it's not yep. just a blanket like, oh, hey, this is a person. Go to DOC treatment number eight. Okay. It's just, there's a bed available. Go there. It's okay. actually matching them up with a place that's going to fit them for the okay. specific problems that they have because everybody's so different. You know, you can't throw a blanket over addiction and just be like, yeah, we'll fix it with this. Mm. We have to dig deep into every person's situation, their socioeconomic mm. deals, their, you know, childhood traumas, how they grew up, stuff that's happened right. to them. In the room, there's just millions and millions of different variables. And kind of diving deep into that individualization is what has given okay. us the most success. I think that's so important. Yeah, it's a, it definitely gets overlooked. Like, and it's a good reminder for me to mention that too more on my videos that, hey, you know, this what might work for one might not work for the other. So it, it really is personal and each person is going to have their own story, their own adventure. What I always say, though, at the end is that one day you will be able to help other people and share your story. And anybody watching this would be able to create a YouTube channel and help thousands of people because it's your story is your own story and it's so unique and, and personal. I think, um, you know, something really cool about that story too, that stood out. And we talked about this a little bit before about the, about chance happenings. Right. And so that's kind of where I want to kind of dive into Cause that's, it's exciting. It's exciting when things happen that you don't expect, but they absolutely change your life. And so I'll share with, um, one of my good friends, Nick, um, he's been on the channel. He's the guy that used heroin. Uh, and we, we've done a podcast together. He, I met him at an, uh, a meeting for work addiction an online zoom meeting. And I just happened to be talking about dating. Like I was like, yeah, I think my, you know, I'm tying my worth to money. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, Oh yeah. You know, let's talk a little bit after. So it happens that he had been on this huge dating quest where he did, we went out to different countries and dated for like five years, met thousands of different people learned how to actually attract and retain romantic relationships. And now he has uh, he has a wife, he has a kid, he has kids. And um, we've been talking almost every week and he's guided me to make some huge changes in my life. He, you know, I went to Poland in the spring um, off his recommendation, completely changed my life. Came back to the US for a little bit and then came out here to Mexico. He's like, dude, this would be great for you. You know, it's going to be really important to get out of, you know, <laughs> the US for, for dating purposes anyway. They have great recovery, but for dating, it can be, you know, a hit or miss. And so if I wouldn't have just logged on to that random meeting that night that I didn't even want to go to, I was just like, I just probably should go because, you know, I'm feeling like a bum. Uh, I, I wouldn't be sitting right here right now in Mexico City. So it's just, it's absolutely wild. And like with your thing, with the, with the blueprints, right? Like you just so happen to meet a guy that got you into real estate and just was willing to loan you that that financial uh, gift. And I think what I like too is that he loaned it to you, but it was a secured loan. So if anyone goes to the debt addiction meeting, because there is one for debt addiction, they say mm -hmm. there's um, 
there's good debt and bad debt and good debt is that that's backed by um, either assets uh, that are worth more than the, the payment. So like, let's say I buy a guitar, I, I spend, a th I put a thousand dollars down uh, in cash and then I put a thousand dollars on a loan because the guitar is worth 2000. If I were to ever sell it, I could pay back that loan instantly. I still don't like to do that because I don't, I try to stay away from it all completely, but it's good to know that there's those two different kinds. So you were in good debt. So that's a good thing <laughs> that you could pay back um, by selling the house. Significant good debt to the point where in the early days, you know, everybody who was my advisor, you know, like my dad, bless his soul, especially if he's watching, love you old man. Uh, you know, he would, always, <laughs> he would always tell me like, stop doing this. You're nuts. Mm -hmm. Like you're taking on, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And like, you're, how are you ever going to pay that off? How are you ever going to figure this thing out? And I, you know, as much as I love my dad, I am so glad I didn't listen to him. Mm -hmm. That particular situation, because, yeah. you know, the more I, the more I opened myself up to those risks and the more I would shove fear to the side, the bigger and better my life would become, mm -hmm. you know, and not, not mm -hmm. just financially, because good God, like I've been in crippling debt. And some of the worst, most terrifying cash crunches that would keep me up for, for almost days on end. Uh, but I can tell you the number of people I've been able to impact with each successive move grew. Mm. And the number of people whose lives were reformed and restored with each successive move grew. And the little army of people who would go on to help other people grew. And then more people would help other people. And that grew. And that grew mm. into 12 other companies. Wow. that I now have a hand in or a part in. Okay. And it's just unbelievable. unbelievable. Every single time that this happens, we get to build an entrepreneur. We get to build mm. somebody up and let them achieve their dream of entrepreneurship. And like, it all happened by pure happenstance at the beginning. And I yeah. discovered the passion that I have, and I've been able to follow it for the last 17 years. Wow. Um, oh my God. Uh, you know, guys like me don't get to do stuff like that. Guys like me have poor willpower. You know, guys like <laughs> me go to jail with bad people. Mm. And, and truly bad people. I mean, you know, some I'm sure <laughs> were able to pull something like that off. But I can't imagine them doing it this way. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, everything like Shannon Moore, uh, my good friend Shannon, who's in the, the Night of Recovery documentary with me. Uh, he always says, and pretty much every time I see him, is your story is your greatest asset. And mm, wow. what you said earlier about being able to, you know, share your story and move on and help thousands of people, it mirrors exactly what Shannon says, and it's a hundred percent true. Yeah, yeah. And the biggest act of service you can do is go through that painful process of getting clean. That's the best thing you can do for the world because it's going to help way more people than just yourself. And bonus, you're going to get to live some, have some really cool moments as well. So, uh, t tell us about this documentary. Like, what, what's uh, what's up with that? Man, so uh, through the course of, uh, I think we were doing a. Excuse me, I'm still getting over a little, uh, you know, coronavirus or death flu or whatever the heck's been going around ah. here. Um, the through the course of circumstances, we had. 
Uh, we've been doing these police trainings because when we bring a police department on board for Second Chance, we give them a one-hour training on brain science, continuum of care, and kind of how to bring somebody from hopelessly addicted to living a life of purpose. And it really shifts their perceptions and allows them to go back out on the street and say, this is a person. I really want to help him, you know, and uh, purely random. Uh, the one police chief that was sponsoring the training uh, had called a guy named Andy Shankman up to film it so that we could send the training video out to new officers and not always have to physically do it ourselves. And uh, this guy, Andy, he just gave me his card. You know, him and his wife were doing the filming and making the video, and they were just such sweet people. Uh, you know, I loved them from the second I met them. And I put his card in my pocket and, you know, added it to the pile of 8 billion business cards that I have and didn't think much more of it. And eventually, um, we got this idea. Uh, Jesus Rodriguez, my good friend, uh, came here. We wanted to start talking about doing a documentary on him. He was in the WWE. He had a crazy, crazy life traveling all over the world and doing this stuff. And, um, so, you know, who, who do I know who can make documentaries? <laughs> and I, you know, I reached out to a couple people I knew and they gave me some absurdly high you know, mega quotes of like 50 uh, grand to do this and 40 to do that. And I was like, okay, you know, no thanks. Uh, and I called, Andy. I called Andy up and I was like, Hey Andy, I met you a couple months ago at the police training. You probably don't remember me, uh, but I have this crazy idea. You want to hear about it? And he listened to it and he said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. He didn't nice. say anything about money. He didn't say anything about anything like that. He was just like, yes. Andy and I got to know each other, and just what a tremendous human being Andy Shankman is. Uh, you know, him and his whole family just never really understood much about recovery, never really had a passion for recovery, nothing like that. He'd never been introduced to it uh, until that training. And okay. man, like he just dove so far into this. So we actually started filming the documentary that'll probably be released in like 2097 because we're so far behind on everything. Nice. Nice. But in the interim, uh, I linked up with a bunch of other guys that had wrestled in the WWE and, okay. uh, you know, just through their awesome wellness program, uh, they do this thing where if you've ever worked for them for even one day uh, as a talent, they'll send you to rehab if you have a problem immediately free of charge. Probably wow. the coolest program on earth. Uh, cool. huge, huge fan of that. And uh, what ended up happening was I connected with uh, Shannon Moore. Uh, Sean Waltman and um, Kurt Hussey, who wrestled in, in WWE as Fandango. Sean was X-Pac, and uh, Jesus was Ricardo Rodriguez during his time there. Mm. And so what happened was we did this event at the Ware Center in Lancaster before one of our wrestling shows, because one of our companies is Three Legacies Wrestling, um, because we're just completely nuts, you know? <laughs> And so we did this recovery talk, Night of Recovery, and it was those three guys and me as the host. And, uh, you know, my good friend Brandon Novak jumped in um, as a surprise guest because he had actually inspired Kurt through some of his videos to seek sobriety. And it was just really cool to make that surprise. And uh, Andy and Harley and uh, Keith, our, our production crew, filmed it. And so... We went through the long process of trying to get it shopped out to places and, you know, somebody okay. to release it. And we learned so much over that, you know, eight or nine months of unscrupulous people and just all kinds of crazy things in that world. And eventually we landed uh, with the night of recovery 
live from the Moravian Center, which was another one we had done in August, I believe. Uh, <laughs> August of this year. It wasn't even that long ago. Mm. And Andy, you know, just went to war, figured out exactly how to do this, and you know, got us in touch with Prime Video, you know, Bezos, Amazon, the big boys. The big and B. The big B. You know, never met him. Never met him. Hope one day to. But, you know, him and his team graciously allowed us to get that on, on Prime Video. Wow. And uh, Night of Recovery live from the Moravian Center has been live oh, for a little bit less than a month. And we've been getting so much, so oh, much dude. positive reaction. I mean, like we did a we did a thing last week with the Portland Free Herald or, you know, whatever the, the, the paper in Portland, Maine, which is where Kurt's from. And it was like mm -hmm. our first talk with a, a movie reviewer like an actual movie critic and he said like chris i didn't expect this you know i expected mm -hmm. some like just something completely different and what i saw was so raw and so real that even though i don't know much about recovery i do now you know and like he mm -hmm. was just over the moon excited about it. he wrote up a beast of a review it was so oh, wonderful cool. and yeah, hey, there it is. Look at that. You got the link right yeah. there. Yeah. And, you know, we got just so many people have been reaching out about cool. it, you know, how the stories have been impactful and how seeing guys that they watched on TV relate in such personal ways to the way that they mm -hmm. felt has led them towards recovery. And just, man, I can't wait to continue to do more and more things like that and reach out to more and more people and offer more and more people support and let them know that you don't have to be ashamed of this thing. It's not something to be afraid of or ashamed mm -hmm. of. Just reach out for help and live free. And, man, just what a what a blessing that it has been. And, and just this morning, we, we found out that our four-part docuseries, Repurposed, it was also released on Crime Video. Let's and go, it, dude. I know, right? It's wild. And I, for that one, uh, it's four individual interview stories with notable folks in recovery. And cool. the first one is, is Brandon Novak. I don't know if you're too familiar with him, but just an absolute gem of a human being. He was a you know professional skateboarder, and he uh, worked mm. on jackass movies and wow. uh, Viva La Bam on the MTV and you know all these like crazy things. And he got sober seven or eight years ago. And, uh, man, just what an honor it is to know him and, and be friends with him. And we got to do a nice long interview, and it ended in his new treatment center that he opened <laughs> up in Wilmington, Delaware. Okay. And I'm super excited for everybody to see this one. I mean, it's just it's amazing. His story is really similar to mine, other than, you know, he was at the VMAs and did a whole lot cooler stuff than I did uh, back in the day. But, you know, he opened recovery houses and he has the same heart and the same spirit in those that I felt in the ones that I ran back in the day. And I'm so hopeful for his treatment center redemption uh, to be able to do the same stuff Blueprints has done uh, for their community. And the second one was uh, Spike Cohen, who is our uh, 2020 libertarian vice presidential candidate and who has just a, a shocking recovery story. It's a lot mm -hmm. different than mine it's a lot different than brandon's really similar to yours joel so you might okay. love Mike's story yeah, uh, but cool. compelling the third one was a guy named mike Mizwinski, who's a, a nashville a recording artist and okay. a, a virtuoso but also a beast in recovery one of the first Let's people I met when i came here in 2007 and he is still out there helping people and 
playing tremendous music. And then the fourth one is Paul Fletcher, a former Philadelphia Phillies pitcher, uh, who's just a monster in recovery. One of the <laughs> guys I have ever met who will travel all over the place to do whatever he can to help anybody get into this. And, mm. and I'm just so excited to be able to have other people watch that too. And, and hopefully, you know, laugh at how goofy we are and, and <laughs> you know, just yeah. have fun. God, I love how you say that. Beasts in recovery. That's that's so dope. Just a freaking beast, man. Put put their heads down, do the work. Oh, that's that's so cool, man. And it's so cool that there are so many people in maybe your more more mainstream world that are in recovery. I think it's uh, and a lot of people don't talk about it. And you, I mean, you see like Steve O. He talks about it. Russell Brand. Those are some of those big guys that talk about it. So it's so cool that there's so many people out there that are in recovery and that they do value the the sober life and that they have been able to create happy healthy lives for themselves i think we talked about this before the show a bit the biggest fear is that most people think it's going to be super boring recovery is going to be just a just a pain in the ass and you know like you said at the beginning like you're just going to be being angry about your lawnmower in 39 years and it's like dude, these guys are prime examples pun intended you get it on amazon prime that you can uh live a just a badass life and have amazing cool experiences so man guys I, I definitely recommend checking that out i may actually watch that tonight um tv is one of my addictions so i have to be careful on how often i watch it but uh, maybe i'll just put on the background i'm definitely gonna check it out though uh I, and i guys i recommend you guys do it too just to know that there's other people out there um Chris, we you will this will not be the last you'll see of Chris. We're gonna do uh, some more shows together. We we, we talked behind the scenes and um, hopefully get some of these guys on to be able to share their experience with recovery as well. Um, I know for me when I was when I didn't have very many friends and uh, I wasn't cool in school. Uh, Friday Night SmackDown. That's what I look forward to, just to watch Batista just beat the shit out of some guys and. There's this Asian dude named Jimmy Wang Yang who was hilarious. He only lasted like a season, but he got me going because he was this like Asian dude that could flip and stuff. And um, so I I I do like WWE. Um, and it actually how naive I was, it took a while to realize that you know there's uh there's planning involved, let's just say. So I, I literally believed it was real. I, I'm not gonna lie, I thought it was I mean it is real. It is real and it isn't. It's like you know, it's like, but they do those guys get messed up. Like they like break bones yeah. and stuff. I like to liken it to athletic theater. Ooh, mm. it's athletic theater. Mm. You know, because you come, mm. you suspend your disbelief for two or three hours. Like if you look up the YouTube channel, Three Legacies Wrestling, Lancaster, really recovery based wrestling promotion. Because okay. know, Jesus, Jesus, who you'll see on this show hopefully soon. Uh, Jesus came here to get sober in Lancaster, and he realized in all the places he'd been all across the world, he'd never had his own promotion. He'd done it in India for other people, Egypt for other people, Australia for other people, never had wow. his own thing. Okay, We were able to help him do that. And if you watch some of the stuff on that YouTube, I mean, it's really the first year of its existence, but... Mm. The crowds have grown. The community has grown. We've moved into mm. food drives and clothing drives and toy drives and really just doing everything we can to spread recovery and spread positivity in every way possible. Oh, let's go, brother. Very cool. Very cool. So last last thing I, I have a question for you as we wrap up, and this is for the audience a little bit. You know what? And I'm going to be honest, it's a little selfish ask as well. 
Um, if you're going through a rough time and, and you're you're sober and you know you you know you you think you should be living a great you know this badass life and life's just not going great, what what is your suggestion for people in that situation? And or what have you done when your life hasn't been going as well as you like in recovery? Man, every single time I believe or perceive my life to not be going the way it should, I'm wrong. I'm a hundred percent wrong. Because every single time I think I need to be somewhere where I think I should be doing something differently or better or whatever it might be, it's delusion. It is pure delusion. The universe, whatever you want to call it, always puts me in the position I'm supposed to be in, good or bad. And as long as I understand that and remain aware of opportunities, some of the greatest things in the world can happen. If we look back at Mm. every point in my life from the second we started talking on this podcast on, none of the good things that happened to me were by my design. None of them. Literally none of them. (laughs) They were just the result of me going with the flow of the universe. And in the old days, when we were talking about me going to jail and going to treatment, I opposed the flow of the universe in every way that I could because I thought I knew better and I needed to direct things. Mm-hmm. As soon as I stopped directing things and going with the flow, everything got better. Even when things are going wrong, I try and remind myself of the fact that I'm not in control. I'm going with the flow. And when I go with that flow, when I see what I can bring to people around me on that flow, my life gets better and better and better. So if you're struggling, Jump on the old Instagram, jump on the Facebook, jump on the whatever. Reach out to me, reach out to Joel, reach out to literally anybody and talk about it. Because when you bring somebody else into the situation, it really brings a ton of clarity. Because I can't see situations I'm in clearly. It's really (laughs) difficult because I'm living now. But when I reach out to somebody else who has an objective perspective on what's going on with me, they can give me quality advice and lead me to my own conclusions as to what I should be doing. So I always advise having a strong support group, people who love you, people who care about you. And it doesn't even have to be somebody close to you. It doesn't even have to be somebody who lives near you. It could be somebody from far away. My friend Brandon Mm -hmm. helped my friend Kurt get sober. They had never met. Never. (laughs) He just saw some videos and it guided him towards recovery. And uh, you never know how you're going to impact somebody else. And you never know how somebody else is going to impact you. So just remain aware and definitely know that whatever's up here is delusion. Go with the flow. And that's just how I live. Oh, Chris, beautiful, man. Uh, that grounded me like like no other. <laughs> and, and you mentioned that before, right? It's not in life's – it's not – you know, it's in – life is in life's timing. And, you know, it's just a, a good reminder, that's like – I'm somebody that like, you know, I'm an action person. I, I take it. You are too. You know, you want to get stuff done. You want to give your best in every situation. So when, when you do that and it, the outcome isn't great uh, or as you would have wanted, uh, it sounds like it is always great. It's just not maybe what we wanted that it can hurt. And it can be like, wow, what did I do wrong, man? What I thought universe was on my side, but I love, so I love not, but so I'm really working on getting butts out of my vocabulary because what a butt says is that everything I said before was bullshit. So, yep. <laughs> yeah. So, and and uh, like, just like you said, uh, I'm always where I need to be because, and everything, every lesson is a lesson that was given to me as a gift to learn from. I'll just share with you right now. I just got a little, little mini relationship and I really like the person. And 
I ignored all the red flags. And they are someone that is not in recovery or cares about sobriety. And it really kind of, for me, it, it like, like my college, my, my party boy self that's still in there got to like experience what it would have been like, you know, to date someone had I been healthier when I was using drugs and alcohol. So getting this experience, I got really, really attached. And just like you said, with the support group after, like before getting into relationship, I think three people said, don't do it. Don't do it. All people that are, you know, I trust um, two of them were in recovery. Three of them were and then after about six people said, Hey man, yeah, you should, you should have dated this person. I was like, I'm like, why? And it's like, and I can see now it's because I needed to learn lessons on attachment involving women. Um, I, I was adopted. So, uh, for me, I get really, uh, especially in romantic things. It's, you know, I think it's a little different now, but up until this point, I would love to like my heart couldn't breathe. And that's there's actually a, a group for love addiction. Um, <laughs> if you if you guys didn't know that you can search it in the, the PDF that you can download down below. It's going to give you Yeah, uh, one of the support groups is for love addiction. Um, it's a thing. It's just loving so much that you lose yourself and that it becomes not about the other person. It's about it, be, it becomes selfish. It's like, okay, I want to love them so they can love me back and I can feel good and safe. And that's a lot of that did come up. So all this was, was, has been a huge blessing and lesson. And I just, I just appreciate that reminder that this was higher powers design. This person came into my life to teach me these lessons and all along higher power knew that this person is not going to be a person that's going to be good for me long-term. I mean, for God's sake, some, <laughs> I, I'm a, I coach on addiction recovery and this person uses what, exactly what I tell people not to. So <laughs> like, logically, it's, it's, it's insane. But, like, you know, you, just like you said, you can't see what's sometimes two, two feet in front of you because it's two feet in front of you. So beautiful, man. And this is definitely going to go into a long form little video here so people can get that little nugget of info because I think, I think that's an absolute gem. So, you know, guys, we could talk for another four hours. I know we could. So I think easily and you, and we will be back. We, we got some more shows that we're going to plan to you know bring some more people on and I, I, you know, dive into a little more of, of our stories and their stories. So I will first want to say, Chris, thank you so much for coming on brother. This was amazing. You You're welcome. You're welcome. And appreciate you being of service and taking this time out of your day to share your story. And, um, I, I, I know it's, it's, it's helped people already. And just to know that like you, someone, I think what's so, again, I'll reiterate what's so powerful about your story is you were at such a low, like, it's not like, you know, you lost a girlfriend or, you know, you lost a job, you know, you were in jail. You were in, you lost plenty of those too. Don't worry. And, <laughs> including that, right? like, you, you, you lost many. And, well, you know, cool. you gotta remember, man, like, like my low could have been way lower, you know. I know tons, scores of people who had wow. way worse stories than me. And the the thread, the thread that binds us is that internal mm. feeling, that mm. thing, that thing that we have that other people don't. That mental blockade that about ten mm -hmm. percent of the population has. You know, that's the thread that binds us. Even though you may not have gone as far down the scale as I did we still experience the same emotions, struggles, and, and they're as yeah. real to me in that moment as they are to you in your low moment. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I don't like to put too much focus on how bad things got. 
other than to illustrate the fact that things can get that much better. Exactly. That. Yep. That's exactly where I was going. (laughs) (laughs) To be like, yo, guys. So, lesson today: compare your story, Chris. If it's not as good, you suck. No. (laughs) It's really like, guys. If 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 you can go that low, if you know people that can go that low, um, if I can go that low, you can come. You can go that high, right? And so, absolutely, you know, that mental blockade. I mean, in this situation, you know, that feeling that life isn't right. That you're completely alone in this universe. Maybe it is just human. I don't. I don't really know. I can't. Fortunately, cannot read other people's minds and see if the majority of people actually have that experience. But um, I know that yeah, that there is a, a common thread that binds us, and that's uh, that's that desire for pleasure and more, and the desire to be better and help other people and, and do all that good stuff. So, man. Thank you again, Chris, uh, and thank you for everyone who watched and tuned in tonight. This is, you know, this was a very powerful episode, and uh, it's it's an honor to have met you and to. I'm really looking forward to continuing this relationship as we continue to, you know, spread the message of recovery in, in whatever way we can. So, um, everyone who tuned in and comment, thank you guys so much. Um, we will see you very soon. So look forward to more Chris coming up, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> love it man uh beautiful guys check out blueprints for addiction recovery as well like it's a great um you can you can find more info on on instagram you can find more ins- info through chris at chris um at his instagram right there and then for myself um if you do need uh some one-on-one support i do have recovery one-on-one coaching and i can help you through whatever tumultuous thing you're going through and, and kind of like chris said get you a structured plan tailored to you not to just it's basic, but it's going to be specific to what you're going through that can help you get sober. And I mean, we've seen it. We've seen people come out the other side and it's really awesome. So for that, you guys can hit the link down below, book a call with me and we can kind of find out where you are, um, what you're struggling with, where, what your goals are and really start reframing that mindset. Cause a big part of it and what I focus on is getting that mindset, right. Um, seeing that there's more to live for besides the drug addiction and also working on some of those basic fundamental things that are going to help you feel better just naturally, like eating well, exercise, things that are going to give you natural highs that can kind of start to replace the, the high from the substance. It won't be as high, but if you can get maybe four or five, 10% a day, it's going to help counteract the withdrawal process. And then what I found, and I'm sure what you found too, Chris, is that once you get to a certain point, you're like, yeah, I've worked so hard to get here. It ain't worth going back. Like <laughs> I busted my ass to get to X amount of days. Like it, I'll just screw it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to ride and die. So that was my kind of mindset. I just eventually said, I'm all in. Uh, we're all or nothing people. So might as well use it to something that's healthy. And uh, other than that, yeah, check out the channel uh, for more addiction recovery content. We've got a show tonight with my uh, good friend Joe. We're, we're doing a, a Wednesday show, Chris, um, where we talk about dating. And he has been in recovery for a couple of years. He had like 11 years clean and then he did slip back, but he's back on the horse. And he's uh, he's what you would call like your typical masculine guy. So very, very, you know, well-built. He, he understands uh, male-female dynamics and relationships. And so he has a lot of great wisdom for guys out there learning how to uh, be better with women. and Or if you're a woman, how to uh, be better with men. Um, you can take you know both sides of things you can learn from and, and really start to have those healthy relationships. Because no matter how sober you get or how much chemistry you have with the person, biology is going to kick in. <laughs> and if you cannot satisfy some of those biological urges that we have as male and female, um, then unfortunately it, 
we see it a lot. The relationships just don't work out. So we're really focusing on helping guys get better in their dating life. And that's a huge part of recovery too. Like, you know, I didn't get sober just to, again, sit on my butt and kind of watch TV. I got out there to have relationships, to meet people, to maybe one day have a family. And I knew that if I was to continue to use drugs, that that was going to be not a possibility. So we're here to help you for that as well. And uh, other than that, guys, once again, thank you so much. We'll see you in the next one. And uh, have a great night. Adios. <laughs>